Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where our purpose is to learn more about how effective charities and individuals achieve social change or social impact. I'm your host, Alex Blake, and I'm joined today by Dee Brecker. And Dee, I found one or two biogs online for you, which don't really do you justice because you've done so much. So Dee is currently Deputy Director of High Value Fundraising at Guys in St Thomas. Dee's previously held senior roles in philanthropy, fundraising and comms at a range of interesting organisations, including London School of Economics, Carers UK, Sense, a number of other charities, Department of Health. She's also been a trustee, a chair, a consultant. And I'm sure you've mentioned being a qualified coach as well. And Dee and I have worked together directly a couple of times and also try to stay in touch in between those times. I see Dee as an excellent fundraiser and relationship builder. So we'll ask about those particular things, but also really good at navigating organizations, building relationships across teams, thinking and strategizing and, and really just being a fantastic articulate communicator and one of those people that's able to share insights and reflect things back to me in interesting ways and make me think differently about things. So welcome to the podcast, Dee. Thank you for joining us. Absolute pleasure. That's a great introduction. A really great introduction. Thank you. That's my contribution. <laughs> <laughs> You've worked with so many different interesting organisations across hmm. charities, UK focused, international, public sector, higher education. What is it that attracts you to a particular role? What is it that makes you think, this is something where I can go in and make a difference. Oh, I now have to tell you the truth, don't I? Yes. <laughs> I Actually, it's my network. It was only my first two jobs that I applied for. Every other job has come through a referral. And even the ones where I've been approached by a recruitment consultant it has been, and I've gone back and I've double checked that it wasn't just recruitment consultant. <laughs> Patter has been because someone has said to me, I work with so-and-so or I know so-and-so and they're recruiting. I think you'll enjoy this organisation or I know the chief exec and I, I just think you two would work well together. I think you should give this a shot. But put an application in, see, see where it goes. And I'm very much of the philosophy that you don't have a decision to make until someone's offered you something. Mm -hmm. So you can genuinely go in with something with an open mind and an open heart to explore it. And I think that I've, I've had a really great career. I've not necessarily climbed massively high. I'm not necessarily someone who's been a global director at 30 or anything, but I have worked with organisations that have been incredibly diverse or different in structure, different in purpose, and always worked with people where I've learnt tons and had an opportunity to grow. I'm very grateful to my network because they've not yet got it wrong. Interesting. And I mean, I think you've, you've certainly reached a point probably a long time ago where you could have then moved into either chief exec role or global director at somewhere huge and that sort of thing. But you've gone into those different interesting roles and uh, almost taken a sort of project type approach to, okay, here's what I could do here. Go in and make that difference. You mentioned the, the sort of different structures and the diversity of the organizations you've worked at. Are there things that when you think about those different organizations, 
what's different about them or what's the same about them what are there any kind of particular themes that you would draw on where you, you might you might think regardless of size structure there's always this or is there anything like that that comes to you oh, that's a very good question I've worked in institutions whether it's higher education department of health NHS and then the majority of my voluntary sector third sector work has been the smaller side of medium sized organizations all quite small ones the structured and the, and the larger organizations are interesting because some get delegated authority very very well mm. and others have a have a large workforce and lots of teams and lots of resource and I've gone in and thought wow okay I've, I've never had a team that deals with this before a team that deals with that before and you lose so much in economies of efficiency yeah. that it's absolutely extraordinary that some of the productivity that the small organization I've worked in where we've dealt with um, Carers UK we had a tiny tiny UK-wide budget for communications and marketing mm. but the interconnectivity and Helena Herklocks, our chief exec, had created a leadership team that lent in quite quickly to trust each other, which meant that our teams beneath us could lean into sharing expertise in order to get the job done. So it was very much around two, two plus two gets five. My big bids that went out of the door, I remember when you were doing some, some work with us, Alex, if it was a if it was an important bid, if it was a, an important corporate pitch, it would go through the comms team, it would go through the policy team, not to check its accuracy, but to improve it. And there's a difference in tone, I think, that I that I really like in the small organisations, is that you're always adding capacity into a task. The bigger organisations, it's about approval and sign off. Mm. And most of the teams that I deal with in the larger institutions have talked about their frustration of approval and sign off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, how stifling, when you get it wrong, how stifling that can be. Yeah, I definitely agree. I didn't answer your question at all. Sorry. Uh, no, I like the answer. <laughs> Maybe the question wasn't very good. <laughs> Sometimes I start asking these questions. And I think, what is it that I'm asking here? And then I ramble on for a while and then people just say something interesting regardless. <laughs> so it works out fine. I agree in that I think there is a, a kind of decrease in efficiency as organizations get larger and it's almost an inevitability and it's the kind of trade-off between the growth and scale. You you grow, you can do more, but you you lose that efficiency and that productivity and, and some of the benefits of being a, a slightly leaner organization. And I think Carers UK is a really good example of that kind of sort of small to medium probably medium-sized charity which what four or five million turnover uh, sort of mm. punching above its weight in terms of the impact it's having with a relatively small team mm. there are others there's a, a charity i'm working with called help force which is relatively new uh, a few years old they've turnover about one and a half million team of about 16 18 people massively punching above its weight in that sense of national impact and then of course you've got huge organizations hundreds of millions of pounds thousands of staff i suppose there's an argument that for certain things you need to have scale enable to in order to do it mm -hmm. but I, that seems to be 
there seems to be less justifiable rationale for that, I think, than maybe I would have thought in the past. I don't know. There are there are cases where some of it's helpful, but there's I don't know, it's I don't think it's that often where it really adds a lot of value just to be that much bigger and often when you look at the larger turnovers it's just when there's lots of contracted services which isn't really they're important but if you're delivering local authority contracts there's a, a service provision you're a social care business essentially and that's fine but is there is that enabling you to have a greater impact as a national organization than say a carers uk who don't deliver those services but do the work around the, the sort of support for carers through the helplines and through campaigning and, and changing the policy environment and that kind of thing i don't what do you what do you think where are the do you think of any good examples of you need the scale to be able to do whatever it is whether it's tackling a particularly huge challenge or for whatever reason that you just need to have that scale see I, th I think I think there's times where I've been quite impressed by how the scale works I mean oddly I was I mean, when I was in the Department of Health I worked in the children and young people's public health team and we had an interface with a number of different externally facing public health teams across the department from obesity through to sexual health through to the non-smoking I was there at the time when they put in the smoking ban and also worked with two or three other government departments and I can't talk about government now but that time when I was in there there was a very strong sense of delegated authority you had a very clear mandate you knew what policy areas you were working on but I had autonomy to actually think about what what our director of children and young public and uh, children and young people's public health was seeking to do with that policy area in order to meet what was set out in government and i was given space to think about where how can we best do that so i would go and i you, you know i would go and i talk to people and find out and then think and it gives you it gave a lot of freedom to do that lateral thinking and connecting the dots and coming away and being in another meeting and thinking, I spoke to someone about that. Going back and just being able to walk across the floor or pick up a phone, a lot was done on the telephone to say, I'm sure we spoke about X and Y. We now have to do A and B. Is there a way we can do that together? And that was fantastic. I think that was one of the most agile times that we had. I found, I have found it in parts of working in, within the NHS alongside some of the bureaucracy that happens. And you have moments of it in higher education where seeking to solve something, people are, can be incredibly creative. And then you get caught with sign-offs and approvals that perhaps are not necessary. I think sometimes in the communication space, we can be overly rigid about sign-off and approvals. I think we need to do more about people understanding, understanding an organisation's brand and understanding an organisation's tone of voice and understanding how the brand supports purpose. And then relax. I think then some of this sign-off can, can actually just ease a bit because people need to own your brand and I think when you have when you have strong sign-offs and approval it takes away people's responsibility for fully understanding how your organization's brand works and when I think about comm sign-offs 
always think of just things becoming increasingly bland as they yes. go through this, <laughs> this sort of approval process. <laughs> and and the yeah, the sad thing is that it's it's the sort of edgier content that gets you noticed in a good way. Absolutely. I mean, if if you asked me what charity stands out as or what's most memorable, it's always the ones that are a bit edgy or have a bit of kind of bit more character to them than the kind of very sort of safe corporate identity. So at the moment, it's it would be RNOI for me, I think, would be the ones that stand out just because they have that strength of pushing back when the when the media have a pop at them about rescuing migrants in small boats and things like that. Yes. Um, <laughs> ridiculous thing to have a go at someone about as if the correct thing to do is to let these families drown in the sea. But the, you know, on social media, they'll defend their ground and they'll, they'll make their case. Yes. Whereas if they were to put out more of a kind of corporate statement, then it, it loses that you just wouldn't remember it. It'd just be lost in the noise of mm-hmm. all of the other charities that the Telegraph and places have had a dig at and you can't really remember what their response was apart from kind of just going and hiding <laughs> and not not really standing up for the sector and explaining why actually the chief exec of an organisation that addresses complex social issues and employs thousands of staff happens to have a six-figure six salary as opposed to, you know, FTSE 100 chief execs on 10 times as much um, in some cases with less complex organisations. And and also a lot of the purposes of charities, whether from environmental arts through to social cause, they have a very distinct purpose and the ones that are designed and set up to help people are dealing with people's lives with an intersectionality they're coming to that charity for something that they need, often way later than they needed it. So they're often reaching out at a point of this or referred at a point of crisis. Creating an organisation that has the ability to have off-the-shelf support and the agility to respond on an individualised basis to the person that they're talking to takes a confidence and you would want your leadership to be well paid to be well remunerated to have a reward for their expertise and their professionalism and their focus because you don't want them to come into this for 18 months and then think oh this is a lot of work and I'm really tired and I'm not bringing home any money and my own family's struggling so I'm going to go here and do this better paid job it's a profession it's a it's a profession people should get a professional salary because when you're at a point of crisis and that organization helps you unravel it or helps you on a better path or just listens to you that's a pivotal moment in you and your family's life that's as important a touch point as whether or not you go into a hospital and get a scan as to whether your house has been burgled and the and a, a public service comes in or even a professional service you know someone comes in and installs your cable so you can your wi-fi works all of that is part of the tapestry of life and oh yeah i'm not i'm not really into this thing as to people shouldn't get paid a decent wage for doing an expert job you know most people have are highly qualified and i like the fact that this next generation 
of professionals may or may not have gone to university. I like the fact that for us to create organisations that meet the needs of a modern world, that apprenticeships, boot camps, on-the-job training alongside those with an ed- a university degree is exactly the workforce that we should be looking for. And in terms of that question of getting a better or certainly a more diverse workforce into the sector, what are you seeing happening at the moment in terms of good practice, bad practice? Do you think things are improving? What have, what have you been seeing lately? I, I think that does merit its own conversation because you can you can look at diversity equity, inclusion, sense of belonging in so many different lenses. And I think the I think that organizations are comfortable focusing on groups rather than actually looking at how individuals within their workforce mm-hmm. have to experience things on a multiple level. I think I've already used the word intersectionality because I think it's it's so important of where the intersection of race, gender, class come in, or educational background. And where you're dealing with all four of those, you add on then identity and sexual orientation, or you add on there a disability. And a truly inclusive organisation creates an environment where you you recognise that I don't just come to work as a woman of colour. Do you want to talk about the fact that we were refugees? Do we want to talk about my household income do we want to talk about the races in my family exhibited you know where 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 do we where do we stop and where do we start do we want to have a conversation about the fact that I'm now of an age where my being going through the menopause actually feels like a disability there are some moments where I I say to people this is what I'm going through and I will literally say you have to give me five minutes I'm in the middle of a hot flush I do not know what you are saying to me give me five minutes talk amongst yourself I'll come out of it I'll calm down and people say to me why do you say that and I said because I will not be considered less good at my job because actually for five minutes I literally don't know what you're saying to me Mm. my whole my whole body's working against me and that in itself is a disability for me at this moment because it is I'm lucky is that it is it can last for 10 to 20 years, and I'm very aware of that. But at the moment, it's it's having an impact on me right now. Mm. That's very different for me trying to do my career if I had a hearing impairment or a visual impairment that couldn't be corrected by contact lenses or glasses or any other com- com- complex disability. Working at Sense was an absolute eye-opener for me as to cognitive ability that can be masked because people have a a combined visual or hearing impairment, but also some of the other neurological complexities that can come with with child development and how that affects on you. We are just not ready in the workforce to create an environment where people can make a purposeful contribution to the the society that they are part of Mm -hmm. in whatever way that they can. And I think in a professional workforce, we're very uncomfortable about it. We're very, we can... I think we have a leadership that has gone through the training that knows what to say and don't actually really believe it. There are so many follow-up questions that I could ask you to that. One of the things that springs to mind, obviously, as an individual, you've got the confidence to feel comfortable saying, 
actually, I'm having a hot flush, I'm going through the menopause, just give me five minutes. And that seems like absolutely the most sensible thing to do in, in that situation. But obviously, lots of people won't feel comfortable saying that. Have you found, and you may have only needed to do this in the current role, but I suppose there'll be other situations where things like that come up and you've got the confidence to say, okay, this is going on for me. What sort of reaction have you had? Have you found that actually, if you have the confidence to say, this is what's going on, then by and large, the response is, okay, we get it, fine, and people are understanding? Or have you had some crap experiences as well where people have been really difficult about that sort of thing? I made a very conscious decision when I moved through leadership of, I I spent a lot of my career not saying, not commenting, not rocking a boat. I was very conscious of how much I stood out. I was very conscious of being the only person. The amount of voluntary sector conferences I've gone in and I learned with my, I learned to wear jewellery more in the workplace and I learned to wear colour more in the workplace because I made the mistake of going to a couple of conferences in white and black and being asked and, and being given and asked for more food or asked where the food is. And then I turn and I look and the only people of colour are actually serving. Um, and I've been into so many conferences where I'm the only person on the stage and I'm only the person in the audience of a senior level. That is changing. And that's really fantastic to see that change. Mm. But I made a very conscious switch where I where I noticed that when I was rec recruiting into my team and I had and I had other people on the panel, how I was far more comfortable with people with less experience moving through to get the role or people who who weren't as polished with their accents coming through or people of different races coming through to get appointed and realised that actually my home life and my life experience meant that I was far more comfortable in that interview setting and also could hear through Mm. some of the the ways that experiences or case or examples that used in interview were articulated but I also recognized that sometimes people didn't have the best example to give but I also understood that that wasn't necessarily because they weren't competent or capable but they're not always given the opportunity to do or to try so I shifted, started to shift about how I fought for people to come through. And I think you'll remember from Sense and then into Carers UK, my teams were notably diverse in terms of age, ethnicity, life experience, sexuality, compared to other people. And that's been something that I'm very proud of. But you have to pick your panel very carefully. You have to fight for people in those interview settings. And I am coming back to your, your question is that I, I realised that I had got places because people had believed in me and given me a shot. So I have to pay that forward. And I made a very, very conscious decision to stop doing it quietly, to be very upfront about it and to try to shift the leadership that I was then part of. So I moved into leadership teams of creating space where the teams that I led and the teams that I worked alongside saw me saying saying what needed to be said I'm not always right Alex I'm shocking as that might sound and I don't my viewpoint isn't always right and I don't always 
my perspective isn't, but I try to say, and I try to be myself to show my team that actually leadership comes in a range of different packages and leadership comes in lots of different forms and we should be okay with that. And I am still very, very conscious of the fact that I get away with it because I have the job title now and I have the confidence that someone has to be either feeling very belligerent or really want to make a scene to make me feel uncomfortable if I say something like that. So yes, I, th- I realise it's, mu- it, it's much, much harder when you're a junior member of staff, but that's why I think it's even more important to say it when you're not. But I do, if, if I find that my, members of my team will message me much more freely to say, Dee, I'm having a day like this. Can we have five minutes? I'm, I'm just not working well today. And we use wellbeing days. I'm, I, I'm certain that they wouldn't be that open with me on that. I do feel that my team trust that if they're having a moment like that if they're having a day like that that and they need to talk about it that I don't transfer that into whether or not I think they're competent or whether they're good at their job or whether they care about their work Hmm. they're different things yeah I think it's another thing that's shifting a bit slowly in the in the sector I think for a lot of people it's still not comfortable to kind of share any of that sort of vulnerability and that sort of thing but as more people in leadership roles do then more people become comfortable with it so i think it will be one of those generational shifts probably that happens over a long period of time unless you can show an evidence that you are a truly inclusive organization you do not have the right to ask someone to to do that and it doesn't mean that you do your job better i may speak out about things and i may try to lead with a level of vulnerability Work does not get the whole me at all, in no context ever. And I hope that I never have made the mistake of asking someone to do that. It's unreasonable. People have the right to do a job just because they want to pay their bills. People have the right to do a job because they are really, really passionate about the cause. People have a right to do a job because they're really excited about communications or marketing or fundraising or policy. You can come to work with whatever agenda you want to. The only thing is that you have a contract. Deliver your best when you're there and then go home. Be civil, be collaborative, work well with your colleagues, be respectful, be willing to listen and to learn and to work as a team and to do all of those things. But if you don't want to tell me whether you're single or you're not, if you don't want to tell me anything about your home life, if you don't even want to do anything other than show me your professional front, that's okay if you do your job. The reason I'm bolder now is because I'm trying to encourage those beneath me in terms of seniority to not be cautious about their ambitions to move into leadership because too many of the organizations I work with, I'm still the only person who looks like me around the leadership table. But that's a very conscious choice that I have the luxury to do because I'm now, I make a choice now whether I take a head role, a deputy director role or director role. That's the luxury I have now with my career. Hmm. But whole self to work, I, that's honestly, I, I, I think that's an, almost an offensive statement because you are totally denying and excluding and removing 
any of the barriers that that people have in their daily lives you're ignoring them you're saying you're assuming that people's caution is because they don't want to bring their whole self to work you have no okay my daughter my youngest 22 years old rang last night about a work event that she had gone to and some things were said to her in the spirit of being friendly that were so shocking I could actually say to her I've never had someone say that to me in all of my years of working and Mm. middle daughter works in the advertising world and will share stories that make you blink and she will and and my son left investment banking set up his own business because there comes a point where every single day dealing with comments and viewpoints and judgments is exhausting you have no right to ask someone to bring that whole self to work unless you're going to respectfully welcome that whole self and we are a long 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 way away from that being something that organizations are capable of doing i've yet to have worked in one there's one small thing that one of my clients does which is quite nice and it's it's kind of related to this so and i don't think they ask people to bring their whole self to work at the beginning of meetings they have a bit of a check-in so each person just checks in with, this is how I'm feeling. This is what I'm thinking about at the moment before you kind of get into the thing. So if I'm running a workshop where people might say, yep, you know, I'm really high energy, excited about doing this. Someone else might say, actually, I've got a bit of anxiety about this. I don't know quite what's expected of me. I don't, some of that kind of stuff where it might be. People might say, I just feel really tired. Something happened at home this morning or you know I've got Mm -hmm. this thing going on which they may or may not name the specific thing but Mm -hmm. it's a nice way of everyone just getting a sense of what's going on for people before you then get into the Mm. the work topic that you're going to talk about so as a facilitator it's great that you have that sense of and and often Mm -hmm. often if if you're a consultant coming in and working with a team for the first time there will often be those kind of anxieties about why is this person here mm-hmm. am I being reviewed in some way is this like some kind of thing for me to worry about so mm-hmm. I mean so for this organization because they do that sort of thing people will feel comfortable saying this is what I feel anxious about mm-hmm. you couldn't just do it like I couldn't it wouldn't work if I did it with every client that I work with because if I don't have that culture already you could ask people you know how do you feel about this before we get started but they're not going to have the license to say how they really feel so they're they're going to trot out the kind of oh yes I'm really excited about working with you on this that any other <laughs> I mean creating creating a culture that the, the leadership of the organization that you're talking about to create that kind of culture where people do that and willingly and openly do that that's to absolutely to be celebrated Sometimes, if I think if you get that culture right and someone just says, I, I don't want to share anything, has got to be okay. And I think that's right, mm-hmm. where people can def- defer a response, you're onto something really rather, rather special. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because organisational culture means a great deal. Mm. Uh, but for so many people, organisational culture is not a real thing. Yeah. It's 
it's a, it's a management speak. It's what people feel that they should have, but the culture is not a culture where people feel welcome, valued, respected, safe, or seen, mm. apart from in a negative context. So where people really don't feel that their contribution or their or their expertise is is judged or marked in the right way. If I'm going in, I tend to go in a bit early. So I tend to leave the house at seven, quarter past seven, get into work for eight and we'll do eight till nine, often having coffee with a work colleague. Mm. So do breakfast or coffee with a work colleague, do that social interaction bit that you normally would have got around around the office and saying, and someone saying, oh, what about this? It's like, look, I'm going out for a coffee. Come with me. And days are fuller. I find now in the office, don't find that as easy to do. And those eight o'clock meetings are absolutely brilliant. Sometimes we talk a bit about work, but a lot of it's about that social glue that makes work mm. work. That make, means that when you're stuck and it's like, Alex, Alex will know the answer to that. Because you know, it's not just about people's work. It's about you learn how people think. Mm. You have conversation about problem solving. So sometimes I will go to someone that I've got into a habit of having breakfast with, with I'm stuck on this. I need another viewpoint. And it might not even be their work area, but I really appreciate how they think. Mm. But I do miss that sort of, yeah, whether it's breakfast or after work, just kind of catching up with people. And mm. particularly, as you say, you and I would catch up. And yeah. it's that kind of thing of, might not necessarily be your specialist area, but you have that way of sharing an insight or reflecting something back or asking me a question that just makes me go, huh, I didn't thought of it in that way. That kind of, that just opens up a new way of thinking about what you're, whatever it is that you're struggling with or trying to work out. So yeah, I do. And I mean, there's nothing to stop us from doing that stuff on like Zoom and things, but I've definitely got out of the habit of doing it as much. And I suppose sometimes when you're just catching up with someone, for a coffee or something you haven't necessarily booked it in with that in mind that you're like right I need to talk about this thing you're just keeping in touch and catching up and then it's you know once you kind of chat then you might not even realize that you're having that yeah. that you're struggling with something it's just kind of when you're asked what are you working on and you get into it mm. and then yeah you could somehow manage to uh mm. yeah reflect on something in a different way I think it's a scheduled nature of catching up virtually that mm. makes it even our initial catch-up it it was it was moved and whatever it, it it's harder to protect the social catch-up mm. and it's very easy to devalue it I came out of our last catch-up thinking oh, I really missed those conversations with Alex I just came out thinking oh I, I really missed how Alex thinks and how much of a connection with an, a, a, a fellow professional, whether we're friends or not, but actually with a fellow professional who you respect and how much that improves your professionalism mm. and your leadership. Because it's very easy when you're looking after a team or you're looking after a division or a, a, an area of work to always feel that you have to be the expert. And it's connections with your peers that keep you keep you absolutely relaxed about always learning mm. and 
feeling okay to be vulnerable about I'm stuck with this or I'm finding this really hard or this really upset me and and I felt bad about this or I handled this really badly and I'm not sure how to recover it and you get into a you learn that you can have those conversations and you're not judged Mm. you know you have to have an element of trust in as well but being able to open up and to say, you know what, can you help me pick through this? I think you take that back into your leadership with your team. You take that back into being much more comfortable in an authentic way, not in a, I learned this in a, on a management course, mm. in a very authentic way of saying, has anyone got half an hour? I've been working on something. It's a good time slot. I think in at least one or two of your organisations, there will have been fundraising programmes that have found a way to ask the beneficiaries to support the cause in a way that's appropriate and in a way that it makes them feel good about donating and that the organization's comfortable with and i've seen that this is often something that charities really struggle with they worry that it's inappropriate to ask their beneficiaries to mm-hmm. also be their supporters i wonder can you speak to that in terms of how how do you how do you do that well how do you, mm-hmm. as an organisation, or how do you as a fundraiser convince your organisation that it's okay to do that? And what are maybe some of the things that make it successful and, and that you can, you consider how to do it in an appropriate way? Oh, that's a, that's a good question, because it, it is a tricky thing, particularly if you're dealing with beneficiaries who are partially or wholly reliant on state support their disposable income is non-existent. Their ability to budget and to make ends meet is a focus of their minds and it's a luxury to fundraise. I've been in a number of organisations where I have worked with the board and the leadership team to say that we should talk openly about the fact that as a charity, we need to raise funds in order to do what we do. And we should do that irrespective of, we shouldn't make a value judgment Mm. about whether someone can give. But what we should do is make, is see if we can create ways of supporting us that people feel comfortable and confident in doing. So the very first organization I did this in was a small, where I worked in the UK office of a small international development organization called Link Community Development. And we had a workshop for our Global Teachers Programme before they went out to South Africa. And on each of the seats, I placed an envelope with a red card in. And the card either said, advocate, participate or donate. And they had to fundraise already for their costs to go out there. And they had to use their summer holidays and and credit to my director of the organization that she said okay try it we know this group quite well it's it's a good way to test this and we and I talked I talked to them about our fundraising I talked to them about the things that are enormously hard to fundraise for but make us a great organization such as the ability to give someone the maternity leave that is beyond statutory pay and the ability to promote people and the ability to and the fact of how much it cost us to put in a 
at that time it was DFID, a DFID application or a, a lottery international, the hours that went into that, and that that is money that we have to fundraise for, and said, we could really do with your help. In your envelope, you've got these, these three cards. Have a look at it. And I described what advocate meant or didn't donate meant and participate. So participate where our sport, uh, do your own fundraising or challenge events. The donate was the link to our donation page. And the advocate was to think of someone in your networks that you could introduce us to who may be in a better position to donate either as an individual or as a company or they worked in a charitable trust. So read it. And if one of those doesn't apply to you, and you want to do one of the others, go and swap. I'm going to give you five minutes. Talk to talk to the people around you and see if they want to swap. And then there was space on the front of it, write your name and pop it into the box as you leave and we'll do a follow-up. And we did really well with that. With the, Everyone thought it was a bit ad hoc. I thought we could work with teachers. They, they made the whole activity better because they they really lent into it as a bit of a, a bit of a playful session. And I've taken that methodology in various ways into all the other organisations. With Carers UK, the first time we did an ask on our Facebook page, oh, goodness, we had to take some comments offline. I spent a lot of time in the, we had a little phone booth room um, talking to supporters who were very cross and I explained and it and I had a comms officer in tears with some of the things that were said online absolutely no one was no one was abusive people were hurt and offended that we'd asked had felt that the organization did not really understand how difficult their life circumstances were mm. can I butt in was that you made a mistake in the messaging or was it that that was a really successful appeal, but there were 1% or whatever it was of the people that saw it had that reaction to it? I think you couldn't have got that first messaging right because it was the first time we'd ever said it. And I said to the board and to the leadership team, again, credit to them, of saying this is going to cause some ripples and we have to stand firm because the direction of travel that we want to go in as a fundraising organization when we bring on board new partners in three four years time when we've got maturity that bigger partnerships come on board we're going to they're going to be a lot more fundraising messages going out we've got to start from somewhere we cannot afford to alienate our beneficiaries because they see fundraising messages coming out of this organization where we've not been done explicit fundraising messages so the briefing that went to the membership team and to the comms team is that is that we need to stay firm we can we will have to adapt our messaging every single day until something lands and lands better and then we but we can't retract and move backwards and made it very clear that I will just get on the phone with people I will talk to people over the telephone and we Within 24 hours, we'd I'd had enough phone calls that we had a standing, we had a, a boilerplate that when something came up, we just put the same boilerplate up. And we did that consistently for a year to the point now where I'm so delighted to see the volume of partnerships and fundraising activities that Carriage UK under under their new CEO is is a leading and running with. And had you done the softer comms before that so that was the first direct ask and had you done before that the communications around 
we're a charity, we need to raise funds. This is the within those kind of membership communications and things. Would did was that stuff there? But that would have been a very <laughs> good idea if I'd have done it first. No, yeah, you see, you live and you learn. Um, no, no, it was just mm. oh, you know what we just need to do this. But we had that that voice going through everything. So when at the decision as to we just need to do this, we changed the tone of voice in everything. The membership magazine, how we ran the annual conference, it didn't become fundraising heavy, but we talked about the funds that we were raising, mm. and we always and the. Laura, who was looking after our community and our direct marketing, was very smart and created some nice ways that people could contribute, but it wasn't necessarily their money. So the little collection boxes that go next to your kettle, friends come around for a cup of tea, you know, they held 50 quid. So hold them and then give them in. People could ask to take a collection tin and ask one of their local shops whether they'd hold the collection tin for Carers UK. And so we did quite soft ways where people could contribute but they knew that we weren't that we understood mm. that they may not be able to give themselves but them doing this was fantastic and then we'd post on on site post on facebook or on twitter huge thanks to alex for for his collection tim mm. yeah and so if you were advising a charity wanting to do this for the first time would it be that you want to get that communication messaging right first in terms of the understanding amongst that group that you're you're a charity you need to fundraise and change the tone and the messaging before going in making the ask maybe doing some of that engagement work in the way that you described with the other charity where you're getting you're almost doing like a focus group type thing where you're 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 gauging some of the reaction yes and no yeah on pa- on absolutely on paper the 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 strategic approach would be softly softly get your core messages out win some hearts and minds make it make people feel comfortable with the messaging the reason i'm i'm saying maybe is that uh, i think you could it's always so very tempting to hide behind that and be so cautious about saying we are a charity and we fundraise mm. in order to deliver the services that support you and we'd like to and would like to bring you on that journey with us in whatever way you feel. I think that there is attempt. Sometimes you can spend so long consulting that you just never make that move. And I think by the time, because you consulting is about it landing, not about seeking permission to fundraise. And I think you have to spend far more time thinking about have we got avenues in that people can can play a part that they've chosen to play a part with. I mean, you know that even with the annual giving figures, proportionally, it is not the wealthiest that gives the most. And even if, and we've had, we, um, I'll, I'll lean back into Carers UK, we had um, people come to the camp conference who we knew were regular givers, but we also knew how, how badly off they were how hard their finances were mm, yeah and in speaking with them it was I can't tell you how often I ring your helpline I can't tell you how often I've referred your website or given a leaflet I've done or taken someone to all the things that keep me saying we budget for it but we're really happy to say you know that's our way of saying thank you and I do think people people should be treated respectfully 
and for us not to view them as being able or capable to make a choice about how they may want to support an organisation that they value. And it's our responsibility to make sure there's different ways that they can help from volunteering through. Uh, but yes, absolutely, do the soft thing, but don't use that as an excuse not to ask for money. Let's segue into something completely different. In terms of strategy, in terms of how charities choose what to focus on to have the greatest impact, that strategic planning and then the implementation of those strategic plans. Having worked at quite a broad range of organisations, what have you seen work well or less well in terms of that? The process of developing the strategy and coming up with the right plan or a good plan and then the reality of, of delivering that as well. I think, I think strategy building is one of the hardest things because you're trying to look into the future and you're also trying to in that looking ahead into the future also trying to look about about your position how do you know that the balance of the services or the offerings or the products that you're doing are the right things for where we want to be in five years I think I've worked in a lot of organizations where they have done that very well indeed and it's been very clearly linked to their purpose and their articles of association and their vision and their mission and I think that where it's been done best is that the strategy process has involved a really looking back at vision mission goals and saying this is what we said that we're here to do and then not assuming that every strategy is about ripping up the one that came before it's that if we assume that, that there was good thinking in the strategy that we're currently coming to the end of or the one before that what direction of travel have we come to and where are the things that we want to get to in four years' time? And leaving enough space in that strategy period mm. that when an opportunity comes up, because you've got a clarity as your direction of travel, sometimes an opportunity comes up, whether it's a collaboration with another organisation to do something really hard-hitting in the policy area, or whether it's a fundraising opportunity, whether it, whatever that might be, opening up another, another office or closing an office, you've created space within your direction of travel that you can do that because you've understood how to assess that opportunity with actually it's taking us in that direction. We never, we didn't anticipate that opportunity coming up now. And I also think that where it's worked well is that there has been a top-down, bottom-up and a bottom-up, top-down approach happening at the same time, where there are conversations happening at leadership and with the trustees about the direction of travel and viewpoints on where what was successful in the last three or five year strategy where where have we got to did we get to where we wanted to are we where we wanted to be mm. where are we what's different what caused the difference how much of those difference of that difference is was within our control how much of that difference are we pleased and how much are we not pleased about? And very simple questions. I think that sometimes people make strategy processes very complex and very simple um, analysis questions can allow anyone in the organisation at every level with every team to come together to offer that reflection. Mm -hmm. And if that gets put into a strategy period of that, well, therefore, on that basis, we all feel that we're on the, on the right direction of travel. So therefore, what's reasonable for us to be at in year three or year five? 
and let's set some objectives, whether it's to grow our the use of our advice line and our services by 5%, 25%, 30%. Where is the balance of, of our support going? Or where, where are the countries that we feel that we should be working within? Become a lot clearer if you do if you do that. Fundraising, I always hate writing fundraising strategies because you're always in that balance of fund of an organization not wanting to be fundraising led. But if you take a direction of travel where there isn't money, you're kind of in a bit of a conundrum. Or if you are taking a direction of travel where there is where the market is is highly saturated. For example, I worked in an international development organization where they focus on a particular demographic. And in the new strategy development, some external consultants come up, come in, done some nice and very interesting strategy work. And proposed that they that one it, instead of and that they focused on a demographic that was the hardest hit and the most vulnerable and the poorest which if you looked at current operations they were doing that maybe 10 to 15 percent of their beneficiary group and then they're working with a different beneficiary group a, a more affluent group for the majority and they said oh no we should we should switch that balance around and as, as the director of fundraising at the time, my argument was we have no track record in that space and we are competing with all of these organisations that do that really, really, really well. We sh if you do want to have more impact in that space, it should be through us creating more collaborations. If we want to grow our income there, then it should be partnership applications we should say we could take what we do here really really well and let's offer that to your program because I think there's a tendency to look at what other organizations do and say we should be doing more of that what about and that becomes a massive challenge with fundraising because you're persuading people to give you money to invest in you where you have limited track record mm. and that becomes a, a bone of contention and then the other bone of contention is the conversations that you have where it's like we want fundraising to be ambitious mm. let's put some really ambitious targets let's put some numbers on there that are that are ambitious and you just blink and you go okay i don't know how we do that mm. you know we have to have propositions to sell we have to have good programs to to promote we need to have clarity as to what our money is going towards and with ambitious money are we ready to do the things that our donors want us to do if they're giving us bigger sums than they're giving now? Are we prepared to do the stewardship? Are, is our chief exec or our senior leadership prepared to take a phone call from a major donor who has given a seven-figure or eight-figure gift mm. and actually thinks that at, they are very heavily invested in an organisation and they want to have a direct conversation with the chief exec? Are you ready for that? Are you ready for the recognition, for the co-branding that comes with big sums of money and big ambitions and that that's all of those conversations can make writing a fundraising strategy really rather exhausting and I think it's about the size of organizations that I've worked in because I've often worked with quite small organizations where I've had to do a lot of work with the board and the leadership team to pay for consultants to come in there's been a distrust of either agencies coming in to help you write or shape or form things and buying in the external there's a very strong viewpoint is that we appoint experts and the conversation as to the external person has a neutrality they have an ability to cut through are not 
seeped into the this is how we do things they can offer insight can be quite a hard fight and so I'm always conscious that when something's hit really well that that's often come from a very targeted intervention with a great agency or they brought the consultant in or the team's been reconfigured so I tend to want to have a conversation with the organization first as to what got you to that point and that's where some of the biggest improvements have been made in the teams that I've led is understanding the process that got them to create an environment where that great piece of fundraising or structure happened. I'm also not a great believer in necessarily just growing a fundraising team for fundraising team's sake. I think there's a lot of fundraising growth that comes from let's expand the team massively. And there's a number of organisations where that's worked so, so well. Mm. You know, we've really invested in making this team big. Um, and again, I think that's symptomatic of the organisations I've worked in, where they're on a fundraising journey. And what I've not wanted to do too early and too fast is to solve the problem by putting fundraising bodies in. I've tended to take a slower approach and say, let's get everybody in the organisation comfortable with the way that we fundraise, with reporting to donors, with sitting and getting an internal project team together to look at big bids. And once you've got that right, it's often after I've left, which is really irritating. The next generation that comes in, that's a good foundation and then people do better things with it I've often said to I, I, I've said to a couple of CEOs I'm really good at coming in and changing things and getting you ready for your next step change and then you should bring someone else in because mm. I'll take the organization ready for their next step change and then some of the things need to be that I've carefully built will need unraveling because they they were progressional but the culture will have shifted and so you should bring someone in who's going to use that as a platform and be more ambitious. And I think that's so impressive when you see you move on and what you've put in place continues to be successful as opposed to you step away and it all falls apart because you were kind of doing it all. But then it's it's not it's not sustainable beyond that. It's, you know, it's too reliant on the person, the individual. Can I just mention briefly if you indulge me consultants it came up a couple of times in your in your last couple of answers and I forget sometimes there are such different approaches out there that consultants take and I mean I think that often the best approach is it's a facilitator role as much as anything else it's not commercial pay McKinsey to go off and do a piece of work and give you your business plan and that and then you go and do it. And as you mentioned with the organization there where you've got the external consultants that come in and say, oh, you should change to working with this group here. Here's your plan. That's never going to work. It, maybe it can in a commercial space. It certainly doesn't in the charity sector space. And the, the way I would always work is to consider the internal team as the experts and other stakeholders, including the beneficiaries, the people who lived experience, they're the experts in what the needs are, what needs to be addressed, the best way to address those needs. So while I could do some of the information and analysis as part of that strategy process, it would never be then to say, and this is what your strategy should be. It would always then be to reflect that back, mm. facilitate those workshops and for the team to to do that or to be that sounding board to kind of dip in because often organizations will have done part of it 
and might not have done all of the bits. So they just need someone to fill some of those gaps. Or as you, you mentioned about having the kind of that external viewpoint and voice mm. to just help people think through that process. So I, yeah, I do forget that sometimes there are the other approaches out there probably lead to a lot of the mess in terms of then the, the strategies on the shelf or the strategies that people are trying to implement that make no sense. I mean, I, I, I think I'm also fortunate very early on in my career, I worked at the management centre and had a split role as a training consultant and a fundraising consultant there. And when my when my youngest was born for the first four years of her life, I, I was a bid writer and did workshop board workshops and stuff for organisations. So I moved then into leadership roles, not with a jaded perspective of what consultants did, because I think I'd had two positive experiences where it was genuinely about an added value. Mm. I think sometimes you... I think, I think sometimes all approaches are needed. Sometimes it's hugely beneficial to have a consultancy actually just look very objectively at, at, the, at the sector and the space that you occupy and actually to offer a top line where this is, if, if, I, if I look at your organisation alongside all these other ones and then the wider sector and this is how you position. So without me getting muddy about, looking lifting the lid and looking in I'm going to look at all the things that are publicly available and do the same interviews with you as I've done with all the other 10 and this is your benchmark I think that can be incredibly helpful but you need to know why you're commissioning a piece of work like that and what it's for and then the Mm. the value added that bringing in externals can offer to your team the validation it can offer about somebody's expertise and their viewpoint Mm. I think you have to sell in very carefully why somebody's coming in. And and I do mean sell in. You have to do that work in of saying, Alex, if I, if I go actually go back to the, the bringing you into Carers UK, I had just, I had, I think I'd only been at Carers UK for a month or something. And I think it was even in my getting to know the organisation before I formally joined, where I said to you, if you are going to set up your own thing, I think I've got a piece of work for you, but it might take me a couple of months to get that ready. And that worked really well. It allowed it allowed us to move forward very, very quickly without actually adding to a dedicated headcount because it was about using expertise to tailor what our internal experts had worked with. And that worked brilliantly. And the workshop element is something where I've often brought in people to say, we've got a team away day because otherwise I'm the person up the front, at the front. And people forget that I'm part of their team. And I need to then be in the mix of it. I'll start it and I might lead a mm. couple of sessions, but I want to be actually around the table doing the work and my own viewpoint being challenged. And I think the team also has to see that. They have to see that in order to take the team forward. Mm. You have to, as the leader of that team, be in an environment where I'm not just taking the last strategy that I wrote for the last organisation I worked with and plonking it on the table here because I know how to do a strategy. You need to roll your sleeves up and get into it with the team. And a consultant can really help you do that because it allows the team to gain from someone who's working with a number of different organisations to say, I've got consent from these organisations. 
I'd like to talk to you about what I did at Action for Children or what I did here or what I did there. And they found this an interesting approach. I can facilitate an introduction for you, but I'd like to use this technique with you because it worked really well there. And that can be very, it can be very positive for teams, particularly in smaller organizations where the training and learning and development budget is really constrained. The amount of professional development that comes out of working with a good consultant or a good consultancy or a good agency where people take away tactics and skills. Chris Norman at the Good Agency had a soft spot for Carers UK. I'm using a lot of Carers UK examples today. He, extraordinary man who really understood the cause and said, um, I know you're going towards your 50th anniversary. I want to do something to help. And he... <laughs> ran a couple of our, a couple of workshops for us that led us on to the 50th campaign at a hugely discounted rate I'm not even sure that's enough money to, for him normally to pay for put his shoes on but it was a ridiculously small sum of money we still had to fight to get that agreed by the CEO and the board because it was out of their comfort zone but the workshop structure I the team then used for the next few years that I was there as looking at any big cross-organizational project or team we just went straight back to that one workshop with a this is the role that we play in the workshop this is how we slot into looking at here's the overarching goal here's the overarching messaging here are each each of our horizontal vertical work areas and here's how we contribute to the whole became a very quick shortcut way of us getting into the mindset of cross-organisational working and team working in order to deliver a shared objective. Never have got there without the input of, of, of externals. In my current role, I'm working with a small consultancy. We've had a lot of turnover in my team. Post-pandemic, people found being shut out of the hospitals very, very hard. And then you get, you cut, the, the world starts to open up and you think, can I do I have the energy to resell myself into a new deputy director and to reconnect or do am I going to take all of that energy somewhere else so we had we had a lot of turnover and I brought in this consultancy to do a day a week of coaching to my team completely Chatham house rules initially it was a space where they could talk about their frustrations and how they felt about you know my team was at, is still at kind of 47 percent of full capacity but also as a way of saying to the team, I do not, we built our operational plan and our budgets before we had this churn. I do not expect a team that is less than 50, that is at 50% or less to deliver at the level that we said in that plan. And it was the best way that I could demonstrate to the team that that wasn't just words, that this is an investment in them. And that with me taking on more operational roles than I would normally take on as deputy director, to say, oh, what I don't have is the time to coach you. You've got a phone call next week with a donor. You want to practice it. You want to decide which, or you want to decompress after one of them. I won't necessarily have that headspace, but I'm investing because I know that that's really important for you to keep focusing on your skills and to feel positive about what you do. Coaching seems to be something that I hear more of. And I think it's something that people get a lot out of. I think it's really valuable for people. Mm. And I think... I mean, when I was in working in organisations in the sector, which is going back almost 10 years now, it's been been a, a while being on mine. I, I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of coaching at all when I was 
when I was in those roles. Do you think is it something that's being more widely used and acknowledged in the sector, or is it only is it only really in sort of chief exec and director level roles that typically people get access to coaching? Uh, exactly that. That's that's also why I did it for the team. The way I introduced these this contract was that I said to the team, it's coaching is and particularly executive coaches my i have a level seven advanced certificate in executive coaching which is a master's equivalent just about to do my refresher actually Mm. and i like the executive coaching element because it's very specific it is it's it doesn't stray into the crossover of therapy where it's i'm not a life coach i'm not interested in the life coach element it's very much in enabling people to tap into their skills and their talents even their their fears and their weaknesses to say what am I what can I work on what's within my control yeah and recognizing that the people that people get stuck and they and you don't always want to give them answers it's it's helping people use their own abilities cognitive processes to think through and find their own solutions and it's it, it was one of the best things that I did professionally to get the qualification because I'm so bossy and opinionated it taught me how to stop being so directive as a leader Mm. and it actually gave me confidence in developing a leadership style where I didn't micromanage where I took responsibility for clearly saying I need us to get to here are you comfortable do you know are we do we have a a shared and same vision of what here looks like okay, I'm here, off you go. And actually allowing people to make their own ways to deliver an outcome. And I would never have have worked in that way before without doing the executive coaching. And I'm very pleased to say that a lot of my teams will talk about the fact that my leadership style is is quite coaching. But bringing in the consultancy that I've done for the team at Dyson St. Thomas's was deliberately said, this is a very stressful period of time for you as a team. You've lost a lot of your colleagues Mm. and you're very conscious that we're about to start the new financial year. And that's a time of anxiety. It can make you feel anxious about your work or even about how you're going to cope or even are you making the right decisions about where to focus your energies? If that had happened, I said, "I've, I've already been offered if I want to, to have a coach. And it is not often offered to more junior members of staff Having seen the benefit of having this resource available for to every level in my team, it's something I would do a lot more of. And I and they said, are you getting a separate coach? So I said, no, they're my coach as well. And their role is to feed back to me about the things that are getting in the way for you. And it will still stay Chatham House. And if there are things that need to happen, they'll say to you, I think, I think Dean needs to know that this way that she works or what she's doing or this is a continuing barrier. So my coaching was fortnightly with the same with the same team that fed back with that I dealt with my things that I could do with a second counselling pair of eyes on, a second pair of ears on. But they also helped me get a very quick understanding of the behavioural and process things within the organisation to tackle quite quickly and the team culture piece to tackle quite quickly. And were they one-to-one sessions for each of the team members? It wasn't group coaching. Um, it's whatever they wanted. So again, I gave, I had no rules. Okay. I said, this is a resource for you. 
you can use it in whatever capacity you want. This is what it's not going to do. This is what the, the team are capable of doing. This is where their skills and experience lie. And it's and it's varied. So sometimes um, some of the seniors in the team have asked, have actually brought um, managers and officers into the into that coaching session and they've dealt with something together or they've done it one-to-one it's been it's been nice to have that variety I, I do I do have a lot of time for coaching but I think it needs to be very purposeful mm. I think that a bit like consultation you know we talked earlier about how you get people to ask their beneficiaries for money it's like absolutely consult but don't use that as a barrier to not moving forward I don't mm. I think you should come to coaching thinking I want to I want to explore this and explore that and then if that opens up other things you want to work on do that but it's it is this is about building your own personal resilience and confidence in your own ability Mm. it shouldn't and absolutely dip back in and out yeah I think I mean like anything isn't like any meeting or call or anything you do the better you prepare for it the more you're going to get out of it absolutely but I but I, I do think that people need need an ex- external sounding board more than we than we think and i think that's different to a mentor and i and and i think you should be clear and you should be clear about what whether you whether or not really what you want yeah. at one time is a mentor or whether what you want is a yeah. coach yeah two completely different things that sometimes can be used interchangeably yes and there is an instant there is a there is an overlap if they were yeah. two circles there's an overlap in the middle where there's some mentoring can feel like coaching some coaching can feel a bit more like mentoring Mm. and I would probably encourage someone to actually book between at least about four to six sessions with a coach even if you don't use them all at one time and say look I'm booking um we'll, we'll do six pieces of work together that might stretch over a year that might stretch over six weeks because once you started on that reflective journey, I think it's it's really helpful to see that all the way through and then to set your path for your next thing that you might then want to move with, which might be actually you need to find a mentor in this space. Mm. But yes, I think I think we we offer junior people mentors and senior people coaches. I actually think you need both all the way through your career. Mm. Yeah. And I think organisations should train their middle managers in coaching and if they don't want to pay for um, more junior staff to have external coaches for that to be offered by managers in other departments there's a really great collective up here in the northeast that's been set up which is about providing coaching to the charity sector so they've spied a couple of people i know so they run a kick called yes we can community and they set up a northeast coaching collective so they got a group of people in the sector to go through a coaching qualification. And now the members of that collective provide an affordable coaching service to predominantly small charity chief execs. And they also run programs like coaching coaching for line managers or something along those kind of lines. And I think that's really adding a lot of value to the sector. I will I will write up some notes and share links to any useful stuff that we've mentioned during the conversation when we get the podcast up on the website and stuff that's on the page there is there anywhere that people can reach you if you want to be reached i'm on linkedin a lot and then if we have an interesting conversation i then give people my personal contact details but also um, yeah the more the more people look at you on linkedin the more people can find you on linkedin so it's a bit of a the algorithm helps in that way (laughs) thank you very much 
Thank you very much. Have a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast and thank you for making it all the way to the end. Just one more thing before you go. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow us and leave a rating on Apple, Spotify or whatever platform you're using. It just takes a few seconds and means a lot to me so that I know there are people listening and enjoying the podcast and it's worth investing time in producing more of these episodes. If you'd like to share your feedback, comments, or have any questions on this episode in particular, please do post on Twitter, making sure you include me. That's at AlexBlake underscore Keda, K-E-D-A. Or on LinkedIn, it would be at AlexBlake with a space between the first and second name. And that should tag me so I get a notification and I can read and respond to any comments and feedback you have. I'd love to hear from you, if nothing else, to reassure me that someone's listening and any specific feedback will be a huge help with positive spurring me on to do more episodes for you and the constructive criticism will help me improve. So please don't be shy about sharing your thoughts, advice and tips. Um, It would really, really be appreciated. The Charity Impact Podcast is brought to you by Kida Consulting, the company I started in 2013 to help charities maximise their impact. I work with charities and other non-profits to develop their strategies, explore solutions to the challenges they face, increase and diversify their income, develop partnerships, review performance, undertake research and more. And really the podcast is an extension of that. The consulting work is a one-to-one initiative and the podcast enables me to just reach more people and, and share some of the lessons learned from people doing great work in our sector. If you'd like to find out more about us and access all of the episodes on the podcast, the website is kedaconsulting.co.uk. You can also there sign up for our emails to ensure you're the first to know about future episodes, articles, live events, and anything else that might be happening. So thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. Until next time, take care.